Nuclear weapons. The bomb. The big one. Kaboom! Fireball and mushroom cloud and then what comes after. These are images and thoughts seared into our imaginations, our memory, our DNA, but usually devoid of the full horror of their ultimate meaning. They are terms, catchphrases. We hear politicians and pundits casually refer to nuclear bombs as talking points. But what would it truly mean? And what will it take for people to understand the immediacy and totality of nuclear annihilation from even a single bomb? That's why it's important to listen to a major international nuclear campaigner who lives in New York City, admittedly a prime target for nukes, and she tells you, I live near Columbia University, but I do go to the United Nations quite a bit. And there's so many times when I am walking through the Times Square subway station and I just think I literally get tears in my eyes thinking that that would be turned into, it would evaporate. Everything there, the human beings, the station, everything would absolutely evaporate and turn into a mushroom cloud high over the city. It's just not acceptable. Well, when Dr. Ivana Hughes, president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation, shares with you what she envisions if a nuke gets dropped on Manhattan, and when other activists and campaigners share the urgency of banning bombs and gaining control of the ones that currently exist, you find yourself terrifyingly close to the truth about that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we catch up with interviews on nuclear weapons that were recorded at November's second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, held at the United Nations. We hear from Dr. Ivana Hughes, who is president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Dimity Hawkins of Australia, who is a co-founder and current board member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons Australia. Then we will have our first Nuke Watch report with John LaForge covering U.S. nuclear policy, NATO, and the politics of nuclear weapons in Europe. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear hot seat hot story with Linda Penn-Gunter, and more honest nuclear information than Taylor Swift has yet put into any of her songs, though we keep hoping. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 9, 2024, and here is this week's nuclear news 
from a different perspective. Here in the U.S., starting with nuclear corruption, the Georgia Public Service Commission and Georgia Power are facing renewed accusations of collusion and possible corruption following the recent rate increase approved by the Service Commission for the Vogel Units 3 and 4 nuclear expansion project. Similar to recent high-profile nuclear corruption scandals in Ohio, Illinois, and South Carolina, Georgia's utility commissioners acted against the best interests of Georgia ratepayers, rubber-stamping cost recovery for mistakes made by Georgia Power. Despite numerous warnings and opportunities to avert rate increases, Georgia Power secured rate base increases of $7.56 billion with a B dollars in cost overruns for Vogel 3 and 4. Added to previous rate increases for Vogel, this rate increase will raise residential and small business electric rates by 26%, and that is only meant to cover construction costs. Once Unit 4 enters commercial operation, Georgia Power will be able to expand their rate base to an astounding $11.1 billion on which the company also profits. Nuclear Watch South and Georgia WAND, formerly Atlanta Women's Action for Nuclear Disarmament, are calling on the Securities and Exchange Commission to investigate Georgia Power Service Commission and Georgia Power, as it did for the failed summer nuclear expansion in South Carolina and the recent bribery scandals involving nuclear corruption in Ohio and Illinois. Glenn Carroll, Nuclear Watch South's coordinator, said, The Commission's decision to saddle Georgia Power ratepayers with an additional $7.56 billion in costs for Vogel Units 3 and 4 demonstrates the complete lack of meaningful regulatory oversight to protect consumer interests. Earlier in December, former Ohio Public Utilities Commission Chairman Samuel Rondozo was charged by federal prosecutors for bribery and embezzlement crimes related to the 2020 bailout of nuclear power plants in Ohio. His arrest followed the conviction of Ohio's former State House Speaker, Larry Householder, who was found guilty in the same corruption scheme. What is particularly galling is that during the span of Vogel construction, when construction costs were underestimated and behind schedule, Georgia Power realized $17 billion in profits. Georgia Power executives admitted to mistakes in the planning and execution of the new reactors, but have refused to shoulder the financial burden of these mistakes, and instead have passed the increased costs off onto customers. Here's a cautionary tale for any of the companies that are planning to cash in on small modular nuclear reactors, a still fictional source of energy. Almost exactly one year ago, new scale power made history as the first of a new generation of nuclear energy startups to win regulatory approval of its reactor design for small modular nuclear reactors. Just in time for the Biden administration to begin pumping billions of federal dollars into turning around the nation's atomic energy industry. But as mounting costs and the cancellation of its landmark first power plant have burned through shrinking cash reserves, the Oregon-based company is laying off as much as 40% of its workforce. Job cuts to the remaining employees was announced at a virtual all-hands meeting on Friday afternoon, January 5th. And by Friday evening, New Scale's stock price had plunged more than 8% 
as investors sold off their shares. This is in addition to a previous plunge of 40% in new scale stock prices. Until November, New Scale appeared on track to debut the nation's first atomic energy station powered with a small modular reactor. But the project to build a dozen reactors in the Idaho desert and sell the electricity to ratepayers across the western United States through a Utah state-owned utility was abandoned as rising interest rates made it harder for New Scale to woo investors willing to bet on something as risky as a first-of-its-kind nuclear reactor. To underscore the salient point here, small modular nuclear reactors, which are referred to as small modular reactors, do not exist. The one plan that had been approved in order to build one was granted to New Scale, but it is not built. There is no prototype. It has never been tested. They are selling you smoke and mirrors. And to the tune of billions of dollars, the United States is buying it. In Arizona, the Pinion Plain, formerly Canyon Uranium Mine, near the Grand Canyon National Park, has begun. Located just 10 miles from the south rim of the Grand Canyon, the mine has long been opposed by local tribes, most predominantly the Havasupai tribe, and conservation groups over the threat the mine could pose to groundwater. It sits above an aquifer that acts as the source of water for countless seeps and springs throughout the Grand Canyon and is the sole source of drinking water for the Havasupai tribe. Officials with energy fuels, owners of the mine, have long insisted that mining won't impact groundwater in the area. But Taylor McKinnon, Southwest Director for the Center for Biological Diversity, isn't convinced. He said, in our view, it's a disaster in the making. That mine still poses a risk of contaminating the deep aquifer that feeds the Grand Canyon Springs. If that happens, it will be impossible to clean up. An energy fuel spokesmodel said that concerns are unfounded and designed to scare the public and push the an anti-nuclear political agenda, proudly touting that, quote, the mine operates to the highest standards in the world, end quote. Quite frankly, that's not saying much. Groups that oppose the mine include the Sierra Club, the Center for Biological Diversity, and Hall No. We will have more on this issue and where you can go to send a letter and sign a petition against this mining during the activist shout-out segment at the end of this program and also on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 655. In North St. Louis, after years of testing, the Army Corps of Engineers is planning to put up signage along Coldwater Creek, which has been contaminated since the early 1940s with radioactive waste from the Manhattan Project. The Army Corps of Engineers' tongue twister of a title for their formerly utilized site's remedial action program, or FUSRAP, has for years insisted that any kind of signage being put up to let locals know what was in the water was not their role. But FUSRAP and its contractors have been testing and remediating within the 10-mile floodplain of the creek, stretching from the northern edge of St. Louis Lambert International Airport to where it joins the Missouri River. The ongoing focus has been testing so the creek can finally be cleaned up by 2038. Elevated levels of radioactive contamination have been found several miles downstream, 
including the Creek Bank near Jana Elementary School, which was closed following public concerns. But many residents of the area are not aware of the toxic legacy, which is why signs are needed along the creek to warn the community of potential exposure risks in areas where remediation hasn't been completed. Now the signs, with tepid wording at best, claim one of two bullet points. Areas of low-level radioactive contamination may exist that do not pose a health risk if left undisturbed, and contact FoosRap directly if you plan to dig or have questions about property improvements near the creek. It is still unclear when the signs will go up and exactly where. Regarding nuclear weapons, sometimes it takes a crisis to show you how ignorant your elected officials are. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin went to Walter Reed Army Medical Center and was put into the ICU. He's now out of the ICU but remains in the hospital as of this writing. Here's where the problems come in. Neither Austin nor the Pentagon told people, including the president, what was going on. The Pentagon didn't release a public statement about it until Thursday, January 4th, about 15 minutes after it told Congress. It also never informed President Biden. Then, to make matters worse, some lawmakers erroneously said it had implications for the U.S.'s ability to respond to nuclear threats. Don Bacon, a Republican congressman from Nebraska who sits on the Armed Services Committee, told Axios, Nuclear command and control is priority number one, and the Secretary of Defense is a key authority in this chain of command. The confusion here undermines deterrence. Fellow Armed Services Committee member Tom Cotton, a Republican senator from Arkansas, echoed his sentiment. Quote, The Secretary of Defense is the key link in the chain of command between the President and the uniformed military, including the nuclear chain of command. End quote. Here's the problem. The Secretary of Defense is not part of the nuclear command chain. The position doesn't have anything to do with how the president launches nukes. The chain of command for nuclear launch goes straight from the president to the military command center at the Pentagon, which authorizes the order and relays it to the commands and units. This according to Hans Christensen, director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. If you've ever wondered what kind of money the nuclear industry has to throw at whoever and whatever they think will advance their agenda? Here is Linda Pence-Gunter with this week's Nuclear Hot Seat Hot Story. I recently got headhunted by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Yes, really. I was invited to apply for the position of Nuclear Security Officer Regulatory Framework. The representative from the IAEA who pitched this to me said that my LinkedIn profile had, quote, caught my attention. Caught his attention, yes, although evidently he didn't actually read what is on my LinkedIn page, unless they are looking for a dissenting mole. But boy, was it tempting. He went on, quote, as this position is based in Vienna, Austria, we would support you with multiple benefits, including relocation, rental subsidy, visa support, education grant for your children, tax-free salary, health insurance, and many more. Wow, I am in the wrong job, but for all the right reasons. The official mission of the IEEA, an agency of the United Nations, is that it, quote, seeks to promote the safe, secure, and peaceful use of nuclear technologies. And yet, it is also supposed to be a global nuclear safety watchdog. 
Its director general, Rafael Grossi, insisted as the war in Ukraine closed in on and imperiled its nuclear power plants, most dangerously the sixth reactor at site at Zaporizhia, that nuclear power is not the problem there, the war is. Even as the reactor risks in Ukraine increased and Grossi sounded ever more urgent alarms about the potential for catastrophe, he was busy promoting the expansion of nuclear power around the world with evangelical zeal. Currently, the IAEA's proudest headline amongst its 2023 highlights and achievements is that nuclear power, quote, made history at COP28. It's referring, of course, to the ludicrous and widely panned announcement that the world should triple its nuclear capacity by 2050, something that has absolutely zero chance of happening, nor should it. But the agency has a long history as a nuclear apologist, promoter and defender. After the 1986 Chernobyl nuclear explosion, the IAEA was notorious in downplaying and even concealing the true health impacts of the disaster. It effectively has a gag order on the World Health Organization, which must be subordinate to the IAEA on matters of radiation and health, something the IAEA is not qualified to assess. And yet, the IAEA effectively censors the WHO in its own area of expertise. The IAEA was lurking around the halls of the second meeting of states' parties to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons last November. On November 30th, a declaration was published wrapping up that meeting that was abruptly revised and reissued the next day. The new version contained a clause missing from the previous day's statement and reading, We once again emphasize that nothing in the TPNW should be interpreted as affecting the inalienable right of its state's parties to develop research, production and use of nuclear energy for peaceful purposes without discrimination. The burning need to re-emphasize what is effectively the IAEA's mission apparently came on the initiative of Vietnam, although there was no dissent. How ironic that Vietnam, which has considered 2,400 megawatts of new nuclear capacity to be built by Russia on the coastline near Da Nang, will be one of the first countries to be inundated by climate crisis-induced sea level rise. And yet Vietnam, despite its 1,800 miles of vulnerable coastline, is once again toying with the idea of new nuclear power plants, this time both small modular and floating offshore reactors. Needless to say, I won't be pursuing a tax-free life in Vienna, or at least not with the IAEA. And at Beyond Nuclear, as well as on my LinkedIn page, we will continue to call out the hypocrisies and conflicts of interests of the IAEA. IAEA Chief Grossi is right. War is the problem. It's a problem wherever it happens. But it's an infinitely greater problem when it happens in a country with 15 nuclear reactors, like Ukraine. I'm Linda Pence-Gunter, reporting for Nuclear Hot Seat. And that's this week's hot story. Glad you're staying on our side, Linda. Moving over to Japan, where that powerful January 1st 7.6 magnitude earthquake off the coast of Japan's Noto Peninsula is still being evaluated for its potential impact. While Japan's Nuclear Regulatory Agency continues to insist that there has been no damage to any nuclear facilities by the earthquake, they also initially said that there was no significant change in water levels while monitoring the water gauge at the Shika nuclear plant. But it has since been shown that water levels rose by about 3 meters at the site following the tsunami, 
and a four-meter-high seawall installed to protect the number one reactor was tilting by several centimeters. The systems to supply power to the nuclear plant were partially unusable in the immediate aftermath of the quake, but officials say there are no problems with the systems for cooling spent nuclear fuel. Both nuclear reactors on site had been taken offline long before the earthquake for repairs that were mandated in the wake of the Fukushima disaster. The big news with possible impact on Japan's nuclear reactors is that the coastline has been altered. The land has dramatically risen out of the sea, reshaping parts of the coastline, and that the land has risen by as much as 4 meters, or about 13 feet. Newly exposed seafloor has extended the coastline by up to 820 feet in some places, roughly the equivalent to the length of 2.2 American football fields. No word if any of the nuclear reactors on Japan's west coast have had their cooling water intake systems impacted by this change in the shoreline. A very inconclusive article was published in Mainichi on News Navigator, How Are Radioactive Materials in Discharged Fukushima Water Measured? Using soothing and generalized statements, the article claims that ALPS, the radiation removal equipment, can remove radioactive materials from treated water to nearly, notice the use of the word nearly, below regulated standard values. Does mention tritium is difficult to remove to water and then says TEPCO diluted the treated water with seawater to reduce the tritium concentration to less than 140th of the national standard. It's still there. It hasn't been diluted, meaning made weaker. It has been dispersed, meaning it has been spread over a larger body of water, but the amount of tritium remains the same. There's another statement that TEPCO samples seawater and fish from the area around the nuclear plant for measurement. But it doesn't say the depth at which the water was taken, how far away from the plant, in which direction, or the sea currents involved, because all of these impact whether the water is an accurate sample for radiation or not. And when it writes that fish are measured for the concentration of radioactive substances in their muscles, how long does it take between ingestion and something showing up in the muscles? And what size are the fish, because smaller fish are impacted before larger ones? And at what depth of water do they swim and were they collected from? All of which points to TEPCO's ongoing lack of transparency as regards almost anything at Fukushima. For more specific discussion and questioning, check out the Nuclear Hot Seat episodes where Tim Deer Jones, a marine biologist specializing in radiation, is interviewed. We will have links. And speaking of fish in Fukushima, here's... Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, Nuclear Hot Seed, None That's Out Awake. In its ongoing quest to have the world either forget about the 2011 Fukushima triple meltdown nuclear disaster or consider its consequences long in the past, Japan ran a global competition contest on people's thoughts about Fukushima. And what did the winners get? A trip to Japan, to Fukushima Prefecture, to J Village, the sports complex only 20 kilometers or 12 and a half miles away from the disaster site, and where radioactive water is being dumped into the Pacific Ocean. 
And what did they do there? What were they there to learn all about? How to make sushi. That's right, with media stories touting this famous delicacy. And that Fukushima is known for its, quote, fresh and delicious fish. How is this wrong-headed? Let's count the ways, shall we? J Village was the staging area for disaster workers for five years after the disaster began. Workers drove vehicles from the Fukushima work sites and changed clothes there, taking off their radioactive protective wear and leaving behind traces of radioactive particles. Radiation hotspots were found by Greenpeace at the J Village Sports Facility in Fukushima before the 2020 Olympics, which were actually held in 2021. That's also where the Tokyo Olympic torch relay began, and preliminary heats of softball and other sports were held on the fields. Starting in August of 2023, radioactive tritium-contaminated water from Fukushima has been released into the Pacific Ocean. In a possibly connected but not yet proven event, thousands of dead fish have been washing up on the beaches and coast of northern Japan, and no one seems to know why. But in all the coverage, that other F-word, Fukushima, has not been mentioned. So there you have it. Raw fish, 12 miles from Fukushima, in a facility known to have had radioactive hotspots, with thousands of dead fish washing up on shores to the north. This is a prize that the winners get for an essay on Fukushima? What do the losers get? Worse, none of the participants in the sushi-making event were informed of any of the possible compromises to health and safety, represented by where they ended up after this wrong-headed event. But hey, optics, propaganda, and that's why whoever and whatever knucklehead is behind this propaganda writing competition and the sushi that results from it, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. In Sweden, a partial outage at Sweden's Forsmark II nuclear reactor was extended by three weeks until January 24th while repairs are made to a generator. This is what the operator said in a market message posted via Nordic Power Exchange Nordpool on Wednesday, January 3rd. The outage coincides with a winter cold snap that has sent Nordic temperatures to their lowest levels in decades, boosting demand for electricity in heating. And at that exact time, the energy source of nuclear is unavailable. So much for that technology's reliability. And we will link to an article on how passport privilege undermines the nuclear ban treaty. While last month's gathering of hundreds of diplomats and international advocates for nuclear disarmament gathered in New York City to discuss the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, the majority of countries represented are headquartered in North America, Europe, and Japan. But 91% of the countries signed on to the treaty are in the Global South. In order for representatives to gain a visa to attend events in Geneva, Vienna, and New York, which is where these meetings have taken place before, individuals must provide extensive documentation of income, personal information including about relatives, biometric information, invitation letters or sponsorship letters, and pre-booked return flight and accommodation details. The U.S. requires all social media handles, email accounts, and phone numbers owned by the applicant during the past five years. 
The link will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 655. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment, but first, each week, the nuclear industry provides us with new nightmares. But you couldn't tell any of it was happening if all you follow is mainstream media. They take the party line, repeat nuclear industry talking points that are spoon-fed them through carefully honed press releases and pre-written pro-nuke stories. So if you want the true story about the nuclear industry's dirty laundry, that's why Nuclear Hot Seat exists. To give a caring, compassionate, and concerned person like you a regular weekly dose of nuclear news that you can count on to be honest. Nuclear Hot Seat is the longest-running program anywhere that focuses exclusively on nuclear issues. We're now in our 13th year as a podcast and 8th year as a broadcast and have a long history of scooping mainstream media on nuclear stories, giving context and continuity to local, national, and international stories, even as we work behind the scenes to provide links and introductions between activists, researchers, and reporters so that the honest nuclear story gets out far beyond this show. That's why you can count on us. But in order to keep doing this work, we need your help. Nuclear Hot Seat runs on donations, and we're always in need of assistance. So how about $5? Same as one would spend here in the United States for a nice cup of coffee and a tip to the barista. Or buy Nuclear Hot Seat a cup of coffee a month with a recurring donation of just $5. Be it one time or ongoing, your donation in any amount will count towards us hitting our monthly nut. We're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which means that your donations are tax deductible. So go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the red donate button. If you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Don't wait. Go to nuclearhotseat.com to donate right now and know that whatever you can do to help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here are this week's featured interviews. Nuclear weapons continue to be on our minds as the greatest threat to the continuation of life on this planet. To bring the issues regarding these weapons of mass destruction into focus, we're returning to the recently concluded United Nations Second Meeting of States Parties on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons, which was held November 27 to December 1, 2023, in New York City. A Sunday meeting for the international campaigners drew together 250 activists from around the world. I interviewed a large number of these campaigners, and many of them were featured on Nuclear Hot Seat number 650 from December 5th. But there wasn't room for all the great interviews. So here to review our perspective on nuclear weaponry are two powerful international campaigners. First, Dr. Ivana Hughes. She is president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and comes to the foundation from Columbia University, where she continues as a senior lecturer in the Department of Chemistry and where she served as director of the K equals one project, Center for Nuclear Studies. I'm Ivana Nikolic Hughes, and I'm the president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation and also a senior lecturer at Columbia University. 
The Nuclear Age Peace Foundation was founded uh, 41 years ago, this month actually, and I have only been a part of it for the last little over a year. But our mission over the decades has remained the same. It is to educate and advocate for a peaceful world and one that is free of nuclear weapons. Nuclear abolition, specifically through the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, has been a big focus of our work in recent years. The treaty is truly a dream come true for not really just the the nuclear disarmament community, but for the people of the world. I, I really believe this. These weapons are insane. They are immoral. They could destroy our planet as we know it. They could destroy human civilization as we know it. They could potentially destroy all of life on our planet. And that is just not acceptable. If that doesn't bother you, then, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you. It really, really, really bothers me. I'm a mother, I'm a scientist, and I'm keenly focused on making sure that uh, future generations can have the kind of chances we had to live out our lives and have dreams and hopes and talents, use our talents, I think that we have other existential threats. And I will give that to anyone at any, at any time. This one is different. This could end in a matter of hours. If the United States and Russia used one third of their arsenals that they have today, we could potentially be looking at over 5 billion deaths around the world from something called nuclear winter. It's not just the deaths from the bombings and the people killed in the firestorms of the bombings and, of course, from radiation, long-term effects of radiation, but it's from fundamental changes in climate that would essentially just make the planet um, unlivable, where we couldn't produce enough food, where people would starve. And, you know, if that scenario doesn't give you chills, again, unacceptable. Daniel Ellsberg, a a peace activist and a, a nuclear disarmament activist who passed away earlier this year, called the U.S. current and past policies on nuclear weapons dizzyingly insane and immoral and he was right and we need to pound on that and we need to tell our government and and other governments around the world that we will no longer accept that. To what extent have you made use of the Alex Wellerstein site nuke map? It's an excellent tool. I absolutely love it. I've used it in my teaching and some events. It's a very dramatic way to show people what would really happen. Uh, I actually live here in New York City, and there are so many times in particular, I live near Columbia University, but I do go to the United Nations quite a bit, and there's so many times when I am walking through the Times Square subway station And I just think I literally get tears in my eyes thinking that that would be turned into, it would evaporate. Everything there, the human beings, the station, everything would absolutely evaporate and turn into a mushroom cloud high over the city. It's just not acceptable. The number of deaths that Nuke Map, for instance, can estimate for us for these singular nuclear attacks. And the really difficult situation 
is that no one thinks that that's where it would end. No one thinks that you could nowadays, like it happened with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, use a single weapon. At that time, they didn't have any more. The U.S. didn't have any more, and no one else had them. Now we have thousands of them, and so you use one, it's not going to end there. It's going, someone's going to use another and another, and it's going to go back and forth, and it's, it's totally another destruction of humanity. And, you know, it's not just us, it's generations that came before us that worked so hard at every step to make the world a better place for their own children, Many times we've failed, obviously. It's not like we have a perfect world, but we have a pretty darn great world in which we have to still address problems. We just can't, you know, get it to a point where we, we completely destroy it. That's not, that's just not acceptable. And so, again, we've been, you know, doing this for four decades, and now we have a treaty. Now we have a solution. Now we have a way of an internationally binding agreement that can bring states together to eliminate nuclear weapons. And, you know, in my mind, to eliminate them once and for all. That's the goal. Dr. Ivana Hughes, president of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation. Next, Dimity Hawkins from Australia. She is a co-founder and current board member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Australia. She is also a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. This brief talk is also from the UN's second meeting of states' parties on the Treaty to Prohibit Nuclear Weapons and was held on November 26, 2023. Hi, I'm Dimity Hawkins uh, from Australia, from Melbourne, Australia. I was one of the co-founders of ICANN back in the original days. And I also work with the Nuclear Truth Project, which is a project working with affected communities around the world. Obviously, you have a long-standing stake in this organization. How has it changed and how does it make you feel to see this many people showing up? Oh my goodness, it, it has changed so much. So when we began, it was a small group of people in Australia talking about these ideas with our friends around the world. It was always international. It was always a, about that. But it, uh, you know, it started out small and it's gotten bigger and bigger. And now when we come here and we're seeing the second meeting of states parties and we're seeing hundreds of campaigners from around the world, it's just thrilling to see it. What is it that scares you most about nuclear? The weapons and just the longevity of them. It's, it's not just about the weapons, whether they're going to drop on our heads today as they can, because there's so many on high alert all over the world, but particularly from the American, Russian nuclear weapons. We know that they're on high alert and they could be going off at any time. That scares me, but it's the longevity of them. So when we see people from affected communities who were bombed 70 years ago. They might be intergenerationally affected by nuclear weapons. It's the long-term intergenerational impacts of nuclear weapons that really worry me. Question that I'm asking the people who are affiliated with ICANN. Mm -hmm. ICANN does a magnificent job focusing on nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. But there's the entire area of nuclear reactors, which is where the plutonium comes from. As Alan Slater of the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation says, every nuclear reactor has a bomb in the basement. What would it take, or is it being discussed, to not change the course of ICANN, but to focus enough on reactor issues to acknowledge 
the inextricable connection between the two. You guys don't have to do the work. We've got people doing the work. We would love to have the international acknowledgement. What would it take to do that? Well, certainly through my work with the Nuclear Truth Project, that, that work acknowledges the whole of the nuclear chain. From the cradle, which is uranium mining, through to the grave, which is nuclear waste. We cannot separate these things out. So in the Nuclear Truth Project, that's really clear for us. Often when we're talking to affected communities, whether they're people have been affected by nuclear weapons testing, but they'll also often be on marginalized communities that are also afflicted by uranium mining, by nuclear waste dumping. So it's very hard for us not to see those interconnections and to make those connections. What was important, though, when we were trying to get the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons was to keep it very focused, to keep it very focused on these weapons. And I think that's actually, there's a lot of clarity in that. I think there's a, a, a purpose in that, to make it really clear about the weapons. So this is what I'm talking, I can for a second here, to make it clearly about the weapons. I think that we're at a stage now, we've got the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. We have this big international conversation about the importance of getting rid of these weapons. To do that effectively, in my personal opinion, you have to look at the broader nuclear issues. There's just no getting around it. It can't mean changing this treaty, because this treaty is about the weapons. It means working together to draw these things together, in my opinion and to try and draw and build and better understandings of the holistic harms of nuclear in all of this. And this would be part of acknowledging the holistic coming from the biggest and the most recognized, certainly, organization that is fighting to get rid of nuclear weapons. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, this is a, I mean, this is a decision for people far above my pay grade these days, let me be honest. You know, I'm just a campaigner like everybody else here. I know where I began with this, and I know where I am now with it and how I work with it. Before I began weapons stuff, I was always doing uranium and nuclear waste dumping. So to me, it's a natural connection. I don't see how it could not be. But the organization has a whole purpose at looking at the whole of things, and they're thinking about that. The organization is looking at greater connections on climate, on all sorts of issues. It's necessary to do that. We're in a state, the state of the world right now is in a place where we have to see all of these things working together. So I think it's exciting. I think we're at a really exciting time. I think we've got a real opportunity to open things wide up and to think about these interconnections to, you know, give voice to the people who've been most impacted and to make sure they've got a seat at the table when we're talking about negotiating and so forth. I think that's a really exciting thing to do. That was Dimity Hawkins, co-founder and current board member of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, Australia. Our next piece marks the first of what we trust will be a long and productive alliance between Nuclear Hot Seat and John LaForge, a co-director of the peace and nuclear watchdog group NukeWatch. He is a plowshares activist and a journalist syndicated by PeaceVoice.org, as well as a regular contributor to Counterpunch.org. With Ariane Peterson, he co-edited Nuclear Heartland Revised, a guide to the 450 land-based missiles of the United States. John was featured on Nuclear Hot Seat number 603 from January 3, 2023. That was when he was on his way to German prison, for taking part in two 2020 peace actions at the Buchel Air Force Base, south of Cologne in Germany. 
That's where he joined with European anti-nuclear workers in resisting the stationing of U.S. nuclear bombs in Germany and at bases across Europe. Now out of prison and back in the United States, John explains how European countries that do not have their own nuclear weapons are still enmeshed in United States nuclear hegemony. Here we present the first of what is going to be a monthly feature, the Nuke Watch Report with John LaForge. The United States currently deploys about 100 nuclear weapons in Europe as threats against Russia. About 20 U.S. nuclear bombs are stationed at each of six military bases, two in Italy, one each in Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, and Turkey. These U.S. hydrogen bombs are unguided free-fall weapons known as B-61-3s and B-61-4s. They are thermonuclear weapons with an explosive magnitude several times the force of the Hiroshima bomb, which killed 140,000 people. B-61-3 can detonate 11 times the force of the Hiroshima blast. The B-61-4 can be three times as deadly. The Pentagon has produced 12 different versions of the B-61, keeping its profitable assembly line humming along since the 1960s, the way car companies turn out their latest models. You could call our B-61s the Ford Mustangs of mass destruction. In spite of decades of protests across the five host countries in Europe, a new B-61, version 12, is scheduled to replace the current bombs sometime this year. It's not just Russia that hints at nuclear weapon attacks. NATO conducts regular publicized nuclear attack rehearsals aimed at Russia. One such practice, called Steadfast Noon, is staged jointly every year with German, Belgian, Dutch, and Italian fighter jets carrying dummy B-61 bombs. Hans Christensen, with the Federation of American Scientists, reports that, quote, this is the exercise that practices NATO's nuclear strike mission with the B-61, end quote. Jan Marichka wrote in the European Security Journal News that Steadfast Noon is designed, quote, to simulate nuclear strikes, end quote. Newspaper headlines from recent rehearsals declared, quote, NATO holds secret nuclear war exercises in Germany, end quote, and also German Air Force training for nuclear war as part of NATO. U.S. Air Force squadrons train with the foreign pilots at the six bases. They practice affixing the B-61s to German and Italian tornado fighter jets and to Belgian and Dutch F-35s. The foreign pilots practice screaming off toward Russia to drop them. The pilots may take some training at the U.S. Nuclear Weapons School at Ramstein Air Force Base in Germany. One five-day course there, outlined online, says the course, quote, provides students proficiency in creating target models and developing attack plans using nuclear weapons, end quote. The pilot's ready willingness to follow orders that will kill millions has been the object of thousands of written and direct action protests. In one, groups purchased a half-page ad in a major German paper urging the pilots to disobey any such orders. The late Daniel Ellsberg revealed in his last book 
that the military knew in the 1960s that radioactive fallout from its planned nuclear attacks on the then USSR would kill 100 million Europeans without any Soviet nuclear weapons hitting Europe. That is, just the nuclear fallout from the U.S. weapons would kill 100 million allies. Germany's future chancellor, Helmut Schmidt, publicly condemned this planning at the time, writing in 1962 that the U.S. nuclear weapons, quote, will not defend Europe, but destroy it, end quote. During those Cold War years, the U.S. had a total of some 7,000 nuclear weapons stationed in Europe. Today's 100 are what you could call a remnant without a cause. After removing some 6,900 U.S. warheads, the sky didn't fall. Eliminating the last 100 would not even register a hiccup. Today's B-61s can be withdrawn with no loss of security, but rather with a welcome reduction of terror, tension, and risk. Treaty law binding on governments are relevant here. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, or NPT, is such a law, and under its Articles 1 and 2, the United States and the five nuclear-sharing states have all committed never to transfer nuclear weapons, quote, to any recipient whatsoever, end quote, or to accept nuclear weapons from other treaty partners. Lawyers, groups, abolition advocates, influential journals, and nuclear resistors all over the world, some while on trial in European courtrooms, have all argued that nuclear sharing violates the NPT and is a criminal conspiracy. Yet the United States and the European allies assert their innocence. In August 2022, Germany's ambassador to the UN publicly declared, quote, NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements, which include U.S. nuclear weapons forward deployed in Europe, continue to be fully consistent and compliant with the NPT, end quote. This lying in politics sets a bad precedent. Last March, Russian President Vladimir Putin announced he would place some of Russia's nuclear weapons in neighboring Belarus. Overnight, Putin globalized public awareness of the U.S. H-bombs in Europe. Putin said his action was nothing new because, quote, the United States has been doing this for decades. Germany's foreign ministry was furious, if hypocritical, and declared that Russia's nuclear sharing, not Germany's, was, quote, irresponsible, escalatory, and amounted to nuclear intimidation. This denunciation applies perfectly well to U.S. and NATO nuclear threats, which were summed up very clearly by U.S. General Todd Walters, NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, who testified to the U.S. Senate in 2020 saying this, quote, I'm a fan of flexible nuclear first-use policy, end quote. This was a gaffe of some magnitude because U.S. and NATO plans to start nuclear attacks without first being hit with them are normally kept secret. General Walter's truth-telling should have shocked the senators because the first-use plans of our nuclear gunslingers are extraordinarily dangerous, irresponsible, and escalatory. I am of the mind that setting the stage for launching nuclear attacks is both criminal and insane. More on this in a later commentary. Luckily, 
millions of people around the world are part of the reinvigorated movement to abolish such madness, united behind the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Read the text of the treaty online this month for some New Year's inspiration. This has been John LaForge for Nuclear Hot Seat. That was the Nuke Watch Report with John LaForge. John is a Plowshares activist and serves as co-director of the Peace and Nuclear Watchdog group Nuke Watch. During the report, John mentioned Daniel Ellsberg's last book, but we didn't get the name in. It is titled The Doomsday Machine, Confessions of a Nuclear War Planner. It's available on Amazon, or you can order it through any of your small, local, independent bookstores, which is what we would suggest here. The book is well worth your time, but try not to read it right before you go to bed at night, because it will keep you up. As I said at the beginning, John LaForge and the Nuke Watch Report will be appearing once a month on Nuclear Hot Seat to continue giving us perspectives on the politics of nuclear weapons and how the U.S. and NATO nuclear policy is playing out, most specifically in Europe, and anything else he feels it's important to let us know about. But we will be hearing from him regularly. By the way, we will link to NukeWatch on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 655. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. The Grand Canyon Trust is asking that your voices be heard on a controversial uranium mine near the Grand Canyon that has started mining for the first time in 40 years. Canyon Mine, also known as Pinion Plain Mine, will likely stockpile the uranium ore in open-air piles inside the mine's fence, where radioactive dust can blow into the neighboring ancestral footprints of the Grand Canyon National Monument, just south of Grand Canyon National Park. The mine sits above groundwater that feeds many seeps and springs in the Grand Canyon, water sources that flow into the Colorado River. Importantly, this deep groundwater also supplies drinking water to the Havasupai tribe, which considers Canyon Mine to be an existential threat. Canyon Mine is the only active mine officially grandfathered into the new national monument under the country's outdated mining laws. Years of legal efforts have failed to shut it down. So Grand Canyon Trust has asked you to sign a petition which will let the U.S. Forest Service and U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's Office of Environmental Justice know that you are concerned about a uranium mine operating so near the Grand Canyon and within the new National Monument. We will have a link up to Grand Canyon Trust's petition on our website, nuclearhotseat.com under this episode, number 655. It's time to mark your calendars for Tuesday, January 23rd, 2024. That's when the doomsday clock is going to be revisited and reset for the coming year. To review, the doomsday clock warns the public about how close we are to destroying our world with dangerous technologies of our own making. It is a metaphor a reminder of the perils we must address if we are to survive on the planet, and nuclear is a big part of it. Each year, the clock is set by the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists' Science and Security Board, a group of internationally recognized experts on nuclear risk, climate change, disruptive technologies, and biosecurity. Right now, and for the past year, the clock is the closest it has ever been, 
90 seconds to midnight. So what will they set the clock at this year? That's what we're going to find out. Again, mark your calendars. It will take place on Tuesday, January 23rd at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. It will be hosted by Rachel Bronson, who is the Bulletin's president and CEO, and will have as a special guest Bill Nye, science educator known as the Science Guy. And if you've ever thought about having a paying part-time job working against nukes, now is your chance. The National Radioactive Waste Coalition is committed to stopping the production, reprocessing, and transporting of high-level radioactive waste across the country without a permanent solution for the storage of high-level nuclear waste. The job is part-time, calls for 24 hours a week at $25 an hour, is based in Chicago but might be remote and will require travel. We're going to have a link up to the National Radioactive Waste Coalition website, radioactivewastecoalition.org. That's going to be on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 655. And for those of you inclined towards marking anniversaries, January 17 marks the anniversary of President Eisenhower's military-industrial complex speech, delivered just three days before he left office. And January 27 is the National Day of Remembrance of Downwinders. We'll bring you more details when we have them. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 9, 2024. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, we make it easy. You can sign up for it on your favorite podcast channel or cut to the chase and help us out with our Google algorithm. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. You really can't miss that yellow opt-in box. That's where you put in your first name and an email address so that every week we will send you one email, just one, which will contain the link and a short description of the show's contents. That way, you will never need risk missing a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. Now, if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And remember, if you can go to Nuclear Hot Seat and donate, please do. We really need your help. Anything and everything is deeply appreciated, and we're always happy to know that you're out there listening and wish to support us. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2024, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as you cite the program, the website, and if you can throw in the names of the guests whose comments you use, and me, that's appreciated as well. For now, this is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat and Hardestry Communications, reminding you that as the Pope said in his Christmas Day blessing, the human heart is weak and impulsive. If we find instruments of death in our hands, sooner or later, we will use them. There you have it. You have just received your weekly nuclear wake-up call. So whatever you do, do not go back to sleep, because truly, we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. 
nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.